This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. We're not far here in Garrison, at the Garrisonian, as I call it, at this historic crossing point of the Hudson. We're not far from Western Connecticut, where shit happened, big shit happened recently in Sandy Hook, Newtown. I'm sure you're familiar with this. I just drove through Western Connecticut and I thought about it. And I think what we're doing here is very important in these times because I know that gun control alone is not enough. And what we need to develop is self-control. And out of control is not enough. However, we can or should or might possibly legislate it. But inner control and self-mastery and mindful anger management and emotional intelligence, and empathy, and caring, and compassion is so important that we think about this, and reflect on this, and how to develop it, how to inculcate it in ourselves, and each other, and our youngins. Especially mindful anger management, and reaction training, reactivity training. And I think this practice we're doing here eminently, elegantly addresses these kind of issues, like of impulsive, of impulse control of blind retaliation, whether it's the outer or inner stimuli. So we gain self-mastery. So we're not just victims of conditions, conditioning and circumstances. So we can gain self-mastery and cultivate and inculcate in our youngins leadership, not followership. Service-oriented leadership altruistic leadership, and so on, not just mere followership. I was reflecting uh, at lunch, what a friend over here said, what's your name, sir? What Bob said over here about 
fear and anxiety. So I looked it up in the yellow scrolls of the Dakinis in the timeless yellow, yellow annals here. And I was thinking, although I'm sure, not that I remember, I gave a perfectly decent answer and we had a perfectly fine discussion, but I was giving it a fresh take as I was walking around outside and thinking, you know, fear and anxiety, which you, you know, which allegedly, you, you allege is, is your problem, or whatever we think of or allege as our problem, it really comes with the territory. And it's not so simple as to just have to antidote or eradicate, as we, I think we're joking about last night. If we get rid of pain, we might just burn up from being too close to the fire. If we get rid of fear, we might not survive very long as we do find ourselves in reckless situations. Was that here last night or was that two nights ago in Pittsfield? I can't remember. Fear and anxiety comes with the territory, Bob, doesn't it? But what's the territory we're talking about, Bob? What do you think? Anybody? I hear some whispering over here from some of the meek and humble that don't want to interrupt Bob and my talk, personal talk. What is the territory that fear and anxiety comes with inexorably? The territory of selfhood. The territory of ego, of separate ego. It's the small self, it's the separateness, the self-clinging that is afraid, that is anxious. And it should be. It's a dewdrop. It's a bubble on the stream. There's a rightness to this. This is the point what we're talking about. This is the rikpa of fear and anxiety. The, the self has to be afraid. It has to have a survival instinct. Otherwise, it won't survive. Why? Otherwise, it, sorry, it won't survive. Why? Because it has such limited existence anyway. If we don't keep pumping it up, if we're afraid, we'll get tired of blowing it up constantly with every breath. How's it going to stay blown up? This bubble gum, bubble of selfhood that we're reifying every minute, every moment, every day. You know, we grow up trying to, we're supposed to separate and individuate. Yes, that's healthy. We can't live connected by the umbilical cord and having our mother's blood and oxygenation and nutrients going through our body. We have to grow up and individuate, yes. But then we have to realize interdependence also and transcend this separateness. First dependent, then independent, and then interdependent, autonomous within interdependence. So fear and anxiety naturally come with the territory of separate self, as do many of the other things that each of us might feel that we're stuck with or we want to get rid of. Well, we hope Buddhism will solve loneliness. Maybe, maybe God or Buddha or Guru is going to be my big daddy, big mommy, lover, Prince Charming, Princess Charming. No, it doesn't work like that. I mean, we can try to make it work like that all we want. But it comes with the territory of separateness, loneliness. Even if you find the perfect Mr. and Mrs. Wright, for how long? Even if you don't get divorced, somebody dies or something happens. Somebody gets Alzheimer's and doesn't remember you. 
before something happens. Everything is so transient and permanent. So I think we can really cut at the root of this by recognizing, you know, looking into who or what is fearful, is anxious, is lonely, is angry, even, whatever, and cut through and see that it's part of self. It's the small self. It's the separatism. It's the, it's the uh, chauvinist in us that thinks we're different and, in fact, better, bigger, more important than others. If you think you're worse than others, that's just inverted self-attachment. I am the worst. I am so worse than others. I am the greatest of all the worst. That's inverted egotism and narcissism, being self-absorbed with low self-esteem and self-hatred. So just recognize, look into this and see if it isn't true that these things are come with the territory. They're endemic. They're built into the territory of self. And that that's where the work could be done. On decontracting this little bubble-like selfhood that we're afraid will, whatever, will die, will fail, will get sick, will not have a good meditation, will be bored, or whatever we're afraid of, or anxious about, or, you know, can imagine. So that's what I was thinking about, and I think it, it goes well with this work we're doing about opening and releasing and dropping and looking into who or what is experiencing our experience right now then we understand much better our place in the universe and our relation to others and to ourself, which is just one of the others. You know, as they say, we can make peace with ourselves, come into union with ourselves, come home to our true selves beyond the distinctive self and other. Go beyond the small self and realize the transpersonal being, what Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual, the Hinduist tradition calls the Supreme Self with a capital S. Go beyond small mind, realize the big mind, as Zen gurus call mind with a capital M, not just conceptual, limited intellectual, rational ego mind. So I find that very useful in eroding the reactivity that drives a lot of our negative karma our inner negative states of mind and worry, and our outer negative, harmful, uncontrolled, ill-thought, ill-actions, maybe things we would never do if we had time to reflect on them better. If we had more reactivity training, anger management, impulse control. That doesn't mean being more of a control freak. Control freakism is already by far the greatest religion in the world. We don't need more of that. Self-mastery is what we're talking about. Being able to choose how, when, or if to respond, not just blindly react to stimuli, positive or negative. Not just to get hooked by the bait of whatever arises. We're like a fish. We get baited. We're the Buddha fish. We get baited. You know, you can smell the bait. You can see the bait. You can hear the bait. You can nose around the bait. But do you have to buy it? Be deceived by these beautiful, alluring, or negative appearances and bite the bait and swallow the bait, hook, line, and sink, and be pulled out of our element and die again and again, rather than resting in the unborn, where there is no death, in the deathless Dharmakaya. You know, Buddhists will tell you as a catechism, till they're blue in the face, 
that all things are impermanent. But Buddha never said that. Buddha said all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. And all things that are born die and so on. He never said all things are impermanent. And he gave even, even he, for the purpose of damage control, gave two examples of things that are not permanent. Probably somebody asked him. Space, not put together, therefore not impermanent. It no parts, it doesn't fall apart and go away. And more importantly for our purposes, nirvana, or enlightened awareness or freedom. Unborn, undying nirvana, not a thing, not permanent, not impermanent. That's why it's called deathless nirvana. So the notion of deathlessness, which may or may not be the same as the English word immortality or eternal, the notion of deathlessness is there from the beginning of Buddha's teachings. And we can realize that, that supersaturated state of pure being, that's the unborn and undying deathless nirvana, our Buddha nature. Underneath all of this change, when we realize who and what we truly are, not just our body, not just our thoughts and our mind, not just our personality and our psychology and feelings and intuitions, but deeper. Who are you when you're in a dream? And your body's lying there and you're traveling around in your dreams, flying around or visiting dead relatives or I don't know what, riding a horse on the beach or whatever you do in your dream. Who are you when you're in a coma and you're unconscious, but yet there's still the animating principle, you're alive. The clear light is still there, even in unconscious, in, the, in coma. Who are you then? And who dies? Who was born? Who's experiencing right now? Who do we think we are? Do we know? So this is an important part and question in spiritual life. It comes up in the Buddhist tradition again and again, in the basic teachings around the teaching of no self, anatta, no governor, no owner, no separate self, anatta, no independent self-existent self, anatta, anatma, no permanent soul, anatma, anatta. It comes up later in the teaching of shunyata, no permanent separate things, shunyata, a great subjectivity, no objective permanent reality, no absolute reality. Absolute truth is relative to relative truth. It's not absolute reality all the time. There is no absolute absolute. Everything is relative. Even the absolute truth, talked about in Mahayana Buddhism, is relative. Just like nirvana is relative to samsara. No samsara, no nirvana. So don't try to get rid of samsara too quick. Which is a profound subject about our true identity. It comes up later in the Rushen practices, the Nundro, the foundational practices for Dzogchen itself. The Rushen practices, Sushen, subtle distinction. Discriminating between the natural and fabricated or unnatural. Between self with a small s and self with a big s. Between who we think we are and who we truly are between bondage or conditioning, karma, karmic reactivity, and enlightenment, freedom, flow, Buddha activity, carefree, spontaneous Buddha activity. It comes up about the nature of identity. 
which defines so much who we think we are, how we operate in the world, and our own mind-forged manacles or limitations, self-imposed limitations. In the non-dual Vedanta tradition of Hinduism, Advaita Vedanta, the saint of India who promulgated this teaching alone, the main teacher of this self-inquiry teaching was Ramana Maharshi, who died in the last century. He was a great sage and saint. He lived in a very simple way, like a mountain yogi and outside, and of course people built an ashram around him eventually. But he has one or two little books called Self-Inquiry. That's his whole path to look into who am I, who is experiencing, who's on first. That question can unlock the whole universe. And if we make it practical for here and now, it could be who is experiencing this experience right now? Who's hearing these words? Is it your ear? or your auditory consciousness? Is your body or your mind hearing? And what part of your mind? Is it your right brain or left brain? Is it conceptual? And is there a hearer? Is there, are, there, are there six monkeys in there, like operating the six senses, or just one monkey? And what kind of monkey is it? A monkey monkey? Or a human monkey? Or a divine monkey? Or a monk, or a key, or just a process, a whirling conjuries of various forces temporarily congealed into what we think is a monkey, or a person, or me. You know, taking refuge always, as I do, in me, myself, and I, the three jewels, or Jews. Instead of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, truth, knowing truth and embodying it. So it'll come to all of this suffering comes to the territory of egotism and self, separate selfhood. And we shouldn't try to get rid of it too soon. It needs to be understood, experienced, accepted, embraced, and seen through, processed healthily, and seen through. So then we wear it more lightly. I've met several, or perhaps many enlightened masters and mistresses, I don't know who's counting, and how can I tell? But enlightenment comes to each personality different, depending on their body, their gender, their culture, their age, their time and place. They all have their own little neuroses, but not psychoses. We don't have to put another Buddha head on top of our head. That would just make us a two-headed gargoyle. You realize, when you realize, as Suzuki Roshi says, when you become, when Buddha, ne Ooh, what the hell did he say? <laughs> Move the oatmeal around, hope a raisin comes to the top. Well, there's the raisin. When you become you, Zen becomes Zen. When you become you, Zen becomes Zen. Until then, it's not Zen, it's your imagination. So I'll retranslate. When you become you, Buddha becomes Buddha. Until then, Buddha or God is just your imagination. A placeholder, as I call it. So um, I think I'll open the floor now to questions. I have a few tips and pointers and talk about how to optimize this retreat, but I'm going to put that off until later tomorrow or something. Hi. Paul, is it? 
David. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and while we're on the big questions, would you talk about reincarnation? I would love to just take the Fifth Amendment if that's the right one. I haven't seen it. Raymond Bird show in a long time. And Father Dalai Lama is a good example of never talking about reincarnation in public in West. Never. Oh. Never. Okay. He never thanks. does. And they always ask him because he doesn't find it useful. It's like not, not really the best tool, the best subject, the best question well, in the I, West. You know, but what are you really after? No, I, I talk to me. Okay. You, you talked about it today, earlier, and I've been coming here for several years, and it's the first time I think you've ever specifically, that I can remember, brought it up as a topic in discussion. I brought it up? What did I say? <laughs> I don't remember, just the word. <laughs> I don't recall. I don't recall if I did it at. Do you have any proof if I said it? Because otherwise, I don't recall saying that. <laughs> it must have if been you my... have proof, I might be able to recall better. It might have been my enlightenment moment. I don't know. Was I hinting when I said something about now or later? I can't remember the context, just the word. Then, what's, then who cares? But forget about what I might have said. What are you thinking about? You've been coming here for years. The question of reincarnation is a question in the zeitgeist. If we deal with Eastern religion, then we hear about that. So I don't necessarily need to avoid it. If you have a useful kind of question, you know, like, what's your question? Well, my question is, essentially, do you think it exists? Um, I've read a fair amount of Stephen Batchelor, who calls himself an agnostic or an atheist on the subject. And it was um, a question I've been wanting to ask. Um, the subject, the topic, and the belief in reincarnation certainly exists. In fact, it's a big part of the Asian teaching of Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Jainism, perhaps Taoism, I can't remember, etc. It was part of Jewish and Christian tradition until the third or fourth century, the Council of Nicaea wrote it out of the Orthodox books. So it's an evergreen subject. But then, what, what do you mean by reincarnation? Ongoing continuity, or that you, David, are permanent, and you, your personality, your memory, your unis goes on into the next, another life, and is reincarnation I know you're supposed to be asking the questions, but you're going way too slow. And you can't remember what you just asked or heard. Is reincarnation different than you're going to be, uh, when you die, you're going to be in heaven? Anybody ever hear that theory from your Judeo-Christian background, heaven or hell? Let's ignore hell for now since he didn't ask. I don't have to talk about that problem. What's the difference between dying and going to heaven? And dying and going somewhere according to your merits, whether heaven or hell. You see what I'm saying? You with me? How different is it really? It's just a little bit of a different map. Perhaps of a very similar territory, that where you go after you die depends on whether you were good or bad. To put it black and white, yes? Heaven or hell or in between? 
just like in Buddhism, up or down in rebirth. So maybe that's the important part, pointing back again to us, not out to the other karmic perceptions and beliefs and ideas, but back to how do we live and act and be. And the continuity of the effects of that, cause and effect, that's karma. That's, so that's, yes, I believe, I see, I feel, experience, that goes on. But I don't know what you know, exactly goes on or carries it. After we stop breathing, what carries that on is very hard to say. So Tibetan Buddhism calls it the clear light mind or the light body or the stream of conditioning, and it's not your personality or memory. That's what like, Buddhists think. Not Stephen Batchelor, the atheist agnostic, but that's what general Buddhism thinks, or Hinduism has its own ideas about the permanent self, soul, atma, gets reborn in a different body by changing your clothes. You go to bed at night, you take off your, you know, whatever you're wearing, your, your, your three-piece suit, and, and you wake up in the morning and you put on your jogging clothes. So you take off your body and the, the soul, the atma, gets a new outfit, a new body, a new meat suit. Not necessarily human. So it's very hard for me to see. So I'd like to say I'm agnostic on that, but then I sort of see evidence that things don't just end. So I'm starting to think, believe, understand, or something. Things don't just end. You're a professor, you're thoughtful, so let's go a little further into this for everybody. Say, do you think, what do you think happens when you die? Come on, just blurt anything out. Don't, I don't remember. Shilly shally. I don't remember having been there, so yes, I don't very know. Funny. Good. No, no. What do you think hap hap is gonna happen when you die? You stop breathing. They pronounce you dead. I don't know. Your brain waves stop. You're you're dead. Has nobody here heard of anybody uh, coming back after three, two or three or four minutes? So something must have continued. What do you think? Or you a new person? I didn't ask what continues. Something must have continued. Are you a new person after three or four minutes, after you stop breathing or whatever? No. Continuity. What about five minutes? I know you're supposed to be dead after five minutes. Nobody ever heard of anybody coming back after five minutes? If they were in the Arctic seas or something? Nobody ever heard of these cases? Where decomposition has been slowed down because of cold? So I forget how many minutes. A lot of minutes? 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I don't recall what I read. Maybe longer. Or near-death experiences, people going to the other side as they describe it and coming back. So there seems to be some kind of continuity. I don't know. I think these are very provocative areas to consider. So why is it any more unlikely that we have more cycles than that we only have one cycle. We come out of nothing, bloop, we're here, and then we're just bloop, gone. Is there anything else in nature that's like that? The fruits or plants like that, are they like that? They don't come from the seed, they came from a fruit, and so on? Don't we come from chromosomes and genes and uh, juices? And, you know, it's a bigger re recycling, a bigger ecology. Let me throw this out, which you won't hear anywhere else, because this is kind of my own really stray hair. I've said it before. It's in my own crazy idea. I really like it. 
maybe twenty, two or three thousand or four thousand years before people had the kind of technology that we have to see genes and chromosomes, they sensed there was something that continues from life to life and makes other lives similar afterwards. When the body died or was devoured by a saber-toothed tiger or was burnt up and there's nothing left, and yet there's something of the body, the body, not just the awareness that continues. And now we're discovering that genes and chromosomes and other things actually have some continuity through generations. So I know it's not exactly the same as reincarnation, I'm talking about intimations. It's not too shabby to think something continues. Anyway, I think the important issue is the moral implications of understanding that what we do matters. If you sweep the atomic waste under the rug of the ocean, somebody that we're connected to, that we care about, might very well be paying the bill, the repercussions, right? So besides the fact that virtue is its own reward, there are more practical reasons for understanding what goes around comes around. And if we leave this world in a mess, our beloved children inherit the mess and grandchildren. And so if we do harm, you know, good karma, uh, things reproduce in kind. That's the notion of karma. So then it gets applied by the people who think about life doesn't just end when we breathe our last to other lives as an incentive to live a good life now and then you'll, you get promoted, you graduate, you, you don't get left back and you don't sink down to the lower realms. It makes sense. Yes, I read the same books that you do and I, and I, I bug Stephen Bachelor whenever we get together and he has a lot of more interesting things to say than he can get into a book, I assure you. Questions? Yes, who has the mic? Yes, hi. Getting back to something you talked about at the beginning, um, the concept of teaching children and adults empathy, compassion, things like that. There are many children and adults who, for various reasons, really can't be taught empathy, children with mental illness, adults who are quote, too set in their ways, unquote, to open up. What do you suggest to, that can be done to help people in those situations? And well, that's why there's 83, 999 other kinds of dharma. Like loving kindness, like therapy, like just holding and hugging them, like feeding them, like sheltering them. You know, like getting them to feed the people at Thanksgiving so they're also involved in something meaningful even if they don't fully understand everything about karma and its repercussions. There's a lot of good things to do. Um, if you really want a, a, an interesting traditional Buddhist answer, I've heard many Buddhist teachers in Asia say that this dharma of liberation is for healthy people with what he calls stable mentalities, not for, you know, unhealthy people that don't have the leisure or the focus or the, you know, somebody screaming in pain and banging their heads on the walls because of their mental condition or their biochemistry. It, it, it's very hard to talk about 
mindful anger management, you know, and, and, and breathing before you react. When they can't even hear what you're saying because their right ear is getting banged on the wall. So there's also chemicals, psychiatric drugs, and other things that we can do for such people. It's all part of the healing. I mean, one of the etymological roots of the word dharma, which usually means spirituality or Buddhist teaching, not just Buddhist dharma teaching, Hindu dharma, uh, spirituality, truth, what liberates us. One of the meanings is that which heals us. So it's a kind of a bomb. And there's different kinds of bombs. There's, you know, physical bomb and healing and mental bomb and healing and spiritual bomb, emotional bomb, and other rebalancing acts that we could do. And people ask me, can you practice visionary dharma with blind people? You say, why not? It's not whether you can see or not. It's whether you can visualize and whether you can experience visions or not. They say, can you do yoga with somebody who's crippled? You say, of course, yoga means union. It doesn't mean calisthenics. So there's many horses to different horses. Yes, in the back there. Right, the horses on the t-shirt. I think those are horses, but I can't tell. They are. It could they be are. unicorns. No, they're <laughs> that kind of fits with my question, actually. So in my very limited understanding of Tibetan Buddhism, it's a particular brand of Buddhism which is, was superimposed on a warrior culture that was sort of animistic and has all these demigods and things that come out of the Tibetan unconscious. <laughs> so when we... La, 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 go on. La, 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 la. Go on. I don't want to interrupt you. This is your time. So when we chant and pray, are we chanting and praying to... How important is it for us as Americans to have... to relate to those demigods and who are we chanting and praying to? If, if there is no God and we don't believe in demigods, who, who, who's all this for? Are we talking to our own unconscious? We try to align ourselves energetically. Yes, keep going. I like that direction you're going. I, I'm exhausted here. I'm done. You can go further. Yes. Uh -huh. Our own unconscious, the archetypes, aligning ourselves. Well, how important is this? Positive archetypes. Right. I mean, I guess if we were learning Buddhism in Japan or India, we would not be, I mean, some of these ferocious creatures behind you wouldn't be terribly germane, right? I but guess you've never been in Japan and Korea, but go ahead. That's true. Tell us that's your true. story. No, I said I was ignorant, so. Yeah. No, uh, this exists in all those places. Because but, that's human, uh -huh. part of human nature. It's in all the schools of Buddhism and probably all the religions that go on. So the demigods, and those are those just, are those universal, archetypical projections of the human mind? That when we die or whatever, that we project that out and part of our learning is to recognize that those are just projections, to take them back. Pretty much like what you say. So they're universal in a way. So it would behoove us to learn about all those creatures. No, it would behoove us to learn about projection. Uh -huh. And to recognize when one is doing it. 
because if you say universal, that might suggest that everybody that dies sees, you know, Tibetan fireworks. Do you think, I, I mean, you know, I'm just like you. I asked Kala Rinpoche if American Indians, that's what we used to call them then in the Dark Ages. I don't know what we call them now anymore. Native Americans. You know, yeah. No, I think there's a new one. First people or something. Yeah. But I was talking to Kala Rinpoche in the 1970s. So I said, you think uh, uh, Indians, not from India, American Indians, see these deities when they die? So what do you all think? What did he say? Drew knows. Because he's been around Tibet. Any guesses? So he said, yes, they're universal, of course, through a translator. But what he meant was, yes, they'll see fierce things that will inspire fear, uh -huh. so they can see whether they run from their projections or can embrace and integrate their projections. So right. it would be whatever's scary to them. It would probably be a mountain lion or a savage, you know, thunderbird. Mm -hmm. Not a Tibetan Garuda. But how different is that in the world of myth and archetype and the thousand faces of God? So whatever makes you afraid or whatever makes you desire. Uh-huh. So what they, is what you project and then you react to. That's called karmic perceptions. Uh -huh. So that's what universal means. So we kind of pre uh, re uh, regress back to Monsters, Inc., right? It's no, you, you um, plumb the depths and heights and breadth and all of the but consciousness, including the subconscious, the right. unconscious, and other, you know, whatever unnamed um, spheres. You might call it regression. How about you, you come home to the origin, the alpha and omega of it all, not just regress or progress. So that the basis... You get to the ground. The, the ground fundament. of the mind, then, of, of the personal mind is, is very young, and it's going to project I wouldn't say personal, things. and I wouldn't say mind, but yes, along the lines you're thinking. Okay. Because you don't have the words. You said that you're new with this. Uh, you know, you're talking regular good English psychological terms. That's fine. Yes, but it's not a personal mind. The mind is so limited. But, you know, the being, the, the, the primordial being. I mean, this is just Buddhist jargon. It sounds like English, but it's Buddhist jargon. The clear light, you know, the, the animating principle, the source. You don't regress to the source. You return to the source. No, but regress the, has a slightly different... You know, what I meant, though, was that on the way... Sure you pass through a realm yes. where your mind operates like a five-year-old's mind would operate and would yeah. see a monster under the bed. Right, and like a one-year-old mind and like a one-second-old mind and also like a one-celled organism mind right. until, I don't know, what should we say, no mind or source or what? That's why I say alpha and omega, not just alpha. It's the beginning and the end. It's the whole, it's the worm eating its tail. It's not just a, a straight line like a... a a nail. So if you were to meditate in a cave for decades and with sensory deprivation, would you regress back through there to, to, the, to the clear lights to the point where before you died you would see the whole spectrum of mind? Could. I don't know. What's the vital element here? The cave or the years or what? It's get, just getting rid of what's what we're doing here. Yes, it's getting rid of all here. distractions right. so that you slowly, that the, the content doesn't matter. But that's the, right. The forms. You just, already got there. 
That's meaning of emptiness. That's why I said subjectivity, not nothingness. The content doesn't matter. It's all just pure process, including us, ourself. It's a whirling conjuries of forces. It's pure process. It's like a, a molecule or an atom or whatever that is, you know, an atom, I guess. It, it, it's kind of a thing, but it's mostly space, right? With a few little, you know, electrons and all whirling around, so... So I think your um, your your thinking is good, and if you you know learn a little about, if you look into the lingo, you get some more nuanced language. You know, like the many words that people have for things, like supposedly the Eskimos have twenty words for snow, different kinds of snow. I say supposedly, you know, but like anyway, skiers have words for snow that we don't even know because it's how they distinguish, you know, between different kinds of powder. You know, there's the corn powder and there's the I don't know what. So yeah. through the scriptures, you learn a greater discernment of the subtleties of mind, is that true? Yes, and how to uh, recognize and discriminate and how to more intentionally cultivate, or what did you say originally, align yourself with certain... dimensions or certain uh, frequencies. You know, it's like to tune in to what's there, like to tune in your radio, your spiritual radio better, your receiver, and then you, you hear, perceive, know better, clearer, even though it's all there all the time. Unless it's metaphor, but yeah. Another quick question? Sure, go ahead. So when does the nirvana come? I love the truth. It already came. We haven't recognized. When does one Like the Messiah. That? Still waiting, although Messiah has long ago come, unrecognized. Anyway, I shouldn't jump traditions. Let's talk about Buddhism. Primordial purity, spontaneously manifesting, that's Zogen jogging, not Nirvana later. As I said before, pre-enlightenment. Before you've realized enlightenment, the Buddha nature is already perfect. That's your acre of Nirvana. Anyway, don't focus over much on big terms like nirvana and well, God. I, I just mean it in terms of perfection pleasure. and enlightenment. And let's try to take step by step. You know, that's kind of like some of my tips for how to do a retreat. Like, take every day one at a time. I mean, it's easy to say, be here now. Be here now. Every moment, every minute, every day. One day at a time. When you go to sleep, wake up the next morning and start again. And one session at a time, when you have a meditation session, let it end and when the bell rings and go on to the next activity. And then when the next session, start again, fresh. Don't carry it forward and compare and try to remember how it was. And if we're sharp enough, if we, when we get used to it, we can live that way moment to moment, abiding nowhere, totally present, not fixated, not, not linking up the moments with crazy glue, with you know, stringing them together with our own memory and concepts and reification into what's essentially just moments unstrung together, not a garland, not a noose, not a mala bead, a rosary. And of course, you're free to string them together into any pattern you want. If you want to make a rosary, you make a rosary. Don't forget that there's no rosary here, it's just a bunch of beads, and if I cut the string, there's just, where's the rosary? It's just a bunch of beads, similarly with the self. This is Buddhist thinking anyway. 
So for meditation instruction purposes, I like to recall what it says in the um, Diamond Sutra, the Vajracharika Sutra, the Diamond Cutter Sutra, the Sharp as a Diamond Vajra Sutra. Cultivate the awareness that fixates nowhere. Cultivate the in various translations, cultivate the mind that sticks nowhere. Cultivate the awareness without attachment. Cultivate the awareness that's free-flowing or free-floating. Cultivate the awareness that sticks or holds nothing. Cultivate the awareness that sticks, fixates on nowhere, I think is a good translation. It means openness and awareness at the same time. Not just empty vacuum chamber, but luminous, lucid, lucid openness. With endowed with cognizance. Okay. Thank you. One of the reasons I like to have hold stressed, silent, intensive meditation retreats is we think so much and we understand and know so little. And this is really an opportunity to go beyond the mind, using the mind to go beyond the mind. So we have a little study, a little you know instruction, a little Q and A, but let's not spend the whole day thinking and thinking about Buddhism. I don't want to talk, teach about Buddhism. I'm trying to transmit some kind of enlightening way so we can get enlightened together. So join in if you wish. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNowToday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.com.